Sally's going to come do a Bible reading. She's going to read um, in Cantonese and in English. I'm not sure which way around she's doing first, but um, we'll be blessed by that. Today's reading is Psalm 51, and that we can find on page 573 in the Church Bible. I read in English first, then I read in Cantonese. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, brought out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not deny in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 今日嘅经文系出自诗篇五十一篇，请听我读出。神啊，求你按着你的慈爱恩待我，照着你丰盛的怜悯涂抹我的过犯。求你彻底洗净我的罪孽。清除我的罪，因为我知道我的过犯，我的罪常在我面前，我得罪了你，唯独得罪你。我行了你眼中看为恶的事
，因此你宣判的时候称为公义，你审判的时候显为清正。看啊，我是在罪业里生的，我母亲在罪中坏了我。看啊，你喜爱的是内心的诚实，在我内心的隐密处，你使我得智慧。求你用牛失草洁净我，我就干净。求你洗净我，我就比雪更白。求你使我听见欢喜和快乐的声音，使你所压伤的骨头可以欢呼。求你掩面不看我的罪恶，求你涂抹我一切罪孽。神啊，求你为我做一颗清洁的心，求你使我里面重新有坚定的灵，不要把我从你面前丢弃。不要从我身上收回你的圣灵，求你使我重得你救恩的喜乐，重新有乐意的灵支持我，我就必把你的道指教有过犯的人，罪人必回归转向你。神啊，你是拯救我的神，求你救我脱离流人血的罪，我的舌头就必重扬你的公义。主啊，求你开我的嘴。使我的口宣扬赞美你的话，因为你不喜爱祭物，我就是献上燔祭，你也不喜悦。神所要的祭就是破碎的灵。神啊，破碎痛悔的心，你必不轻看。求你按着你的美意善待石安，求你收足耶稣耶路撒冷的城墙。那时你必越立公义的祭、燔祭和全身的燔祭。那时，人必把公牛献在你的祭坛上。这是上帝的话语。As we stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, we pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would create a clean heart in each one of us. Father, we stand before you as sinners. And yet we are forgiven. We're forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Help us to know those truths this morning through Your Word. Speak to us now through this time of sadness that we all share, that we would know the joy that comes from knowing the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus' name. Amen. Do please be seated. May I add, to begin with, though, my welcome to you all this morning. My name is Jeremy Huns, and I'm a reader here at St John's. And lovely to be able to welcome you, whether you're here week by week, whether you're visiting us, whether you're joining us online. For those of us of a certain age, these words. Will be very familiar. Norman Stanley Fletcher. You've pleaded guilty to the charges brought by this court. It is now my duty to pass sentence. You are an habitual criminal who accepts arrest as an occupational hazard and presumably accepts imprisonment in the same casual manner. We therefore feel constrained to commit you to the maximum term allowed for these offences. You will go to prison for five years.
Those words remain the beginning of what, for me, is one of my favourite television comedies, as during the ensuing 30 minutes or so, Fletcher seeks to outwit the governor, staff and fellow inmates of HMP Slade. But joking apart, in the eyes of our righteous and almighty God, we are all habitual criminals. That could just have begun, Jeremy Huns. You have pleaded guilty to the charges brought by this court. And whether we plead guilty or not, we all stand guilty as charged, facing a punishment far worse than five years incarcerated in HMP Slade. And we shall return to that theme a little later. And for any of you that don't know what I'm talking about, just try looking up something called porridge, uh, which isn't a breakfast cereal, um, uh, on YouTube, and all will become revealed. But as becomes very apparent, Fletcher and his fellow lags showed no remorse for their fictional misdemeanours. But the past couple of weeks have seen the justice system and those who find themselves, for whatever reason, caught up in it very much in the spotlight. Much attention has been given, quite rightly, to the case of Andy Malkinson, where the criminal justice system has palpably failed to act over many years to address what has become a clear miscarriage of justice, which has resulted in an innocent man being incarcerated for 17 years for a crime they did not commit and where there was clear evidence to say that he didn't commit that crime. It's also highlighted the issue that he was forced to spend more time in jail because a person convicted of a crime can only be considered for parole if they admit their crime, which is clearly an issue when the person concerned is innocent and genuinely didn't commit the crime, taking us back to the days of the ducking stall, although latterly without the stall, being used as a means of identifying witches. The somewhat barbaric practice, a woman suspected of being a witch was bound and thrown into a river or pond. If she floated, she was deemed to be rejecting the water of baptism and found to be in league with the devil and then subject to execution as a witch. If, however, she sank, she was declared innocent, but was still dead. Slight logical flaw there, I think. But even closer to home for many of us whose children were born at the Countess of Chester Hospital, including her own daughter. The past couple of weeks have seen the culmination of the trial of Lucy Letby, when after ten months of legal argument, she's been found guilty of the murder of seven infants in her care and the attempted murder of six others. She has showed no remorse for her actions, refusing to appear in court for her sentencing hearing to face not only the judge but the families of those whose children she'd killed or maimed and injured for life. And then on the other side of the Atlantic, we have the unfolding drama being played out against the backdrop of the forthcoming U.S. presidential elections. As the former president and many of his closest associates are facing multiple charges relating to events surrounding the last presidential election, accompanied by persistent denials of any wrongdoing, and, of course, against the backdrop of the fact that if elected, the new president can pardon himself of any federal, although not state, convictions. But in none of those three cases are we seeing much seeking of forgiveness or mercy, 
much acknowledgement of the wrongs that have been committed, whether by those responsible for ensuring that the justice system is administered in accordance with the evidence, or by those charged in the Lucy Letley case convicted of truly heinous crimes. Scripture tells us that we will all one day have to face the one who is the rightful judge of all mankind as the habitual criminals that we are. And that prospect sounds hopeless. But brothers and sisters, there is a hope. There is a hope that is secured in Jesus Christ. It is a hope that is founded in confession and repentance. And Psalm 51 sets out perhaps the best example that we have in Scripture of what it means to confess our sins and to seek God's mercy and forgiveness. If you've closed your Bibles, can I encourage you to open them again to Psalm 51, which, if you're using a paper Bible, is found on page 573 of the Church Bibles. And I do have to confess to you that although we heard Psalm 51 read beautifully to us in Cantonese as well as in English, I'm afraid I'm going to be referring to the English translation throughout. To begin with, the introduction to that psalm reminds us of the circumstances which led to the psalm being written. It was written when the prophet Nathan came to David after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba. That account of David's adultery is well known. It's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And as an example of how sins and their consequences multiply, can I encourage you to read chapter 11 of 2 Samuel? And we'll be referring to it. You might even now like to turn to it. Keep a finger in Psalm 51, page 573, but you can find 2 Samuel chapter 11 on page 314 of the Church Bibles. Chapter begins with that lovely line, doesn't it? It was spring at the time when kings go off to war. David had sent Joab, his commander, out with the whole army and they'd gone, they'd destroyed the Ammonites and then were laying siege to Rabbah. But David, for whatever reason, had remained behind in Jerusalem. One evening, David gets up from his bed and was walking around on the roof. Now, it's not quite as surprising because the houses would have had flat roofs uh, there was walking around on the roof and he sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing. He summons her, he sleeps with her, despite her being married, and she falls pregnant, sending news of her condition to David. And both David and Bathsheba know that there is no way that the child could be Uriah's. Her husband, Uriah the Hittite, is away fighting with the army. And to try and cover his sin, David sends for Uriah to come back to Jerusalem on the pretense of wanting news of the war, how that siege at Rabbah is going on. Having received Uriah's report, David tries to persuade Uriah to go home to his wife. But instead, Uriah insists on sleeping at the entrance to the palace with all the other men. David's original plan having failed, he persuades Uriah to stay another evening. This time he gets him drunk before trying to persuade him to go home to his wife. But again, Uriah sleeps on his mat amongst the king's servants. And so, with no prospect of covering his sin, David arranges for Uriah's murder. 
for it is nothing less than that. As David sends to the commanders there to say, look, put Uriah right up front and then retreat from him so that he'll be struck down. So it'll look like an accident, victim of war, and yet it was quite deliberately plotted. And so it is that Uriah falls at the siege of Rabbah in response to David's command to Joab. And after the period of mourning for Uriah has been observed, Bathsheba is taken as by David as one of his wives. But that was not the end of the story. It was not to be a case of everyone living happily ever after. For in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we come to events that took place a year or so later after the child had been born. When the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David, his initial challenge to David is hypothetical. A rich and a poor man. The rich man has many, many sheep and cattle, but the poor man has just one little ewe lamb. The traveller comes to the rich man, but instead of taking one of his own multitude of sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller, the rich man goes and he seizes the poor man's ewe lamb and prepares it for the meal. On hearing this, David is filled with righteous anger, but then Nathan reveals the devastating truth as he tells David that he is that rich man. Nathan reveals the dreadful judgment that will come upon David. The child that was conceived on that fateful night would die, and David's wives will be given to those who were close to them, not in secret, but in broad daylight. Yet despite all of this, there is hope, for as David acknowledges his sin to Nathan... Nathan assures him the Lord has taken away his sin, that he would not die, or not at least as a direct consequence of his wrongdoing. And that's during that context, that period, that David wrote Psalm 51. Before we come to Psalm 51, what can we learn from these tragic events? First and foremost is the dreadful consequences of sin. That one act had consequences that destroyed lives and tore apart families. We may think adultery is okay provided nobody gets hurt, but as this account shows, the repercussions can spread far and wide. As the initial adultery escalated to murder, so the death of a child, as well as a family torn apart by incest, rape and murder. And such events have to serve as a fearful reminder of the consequences of sin. As Paul reminds us, his readers, in the opening verses of Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. Which was an interesting text I was given for an all-age service that I was leading a few weeks ago at another church. But we have to read those words in the context of the rest of the verse, which promises us that whilst the wages of sin is death, the gift of God, the gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we consider David's plea for mercy in Psalm 51, I just want to highlight the role of the prophet Nathan in challenging David regarding his sin. Temptation is all around us. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. However hard we strive to keep free from sin, we will all at some stage succumb to temptation. And we need friends. We need friends who know us and who we know and trust 
to challenge, to rebuke us for the sake of our souls. For it is those who have the courage to challenge us that are true friends indeed. And however uncomfortable their message, we turn away from them at our peril. And we particularly need to pray for our Christian leaders that there will be those who would watch over their souls. Those who would seek to challenge them gently and in Christ should the need arise. But having had the dreadful consequences of his sin made clear, David pleads for mercy in the heartfelt words of Psalm 51. We consider it in three sections this morning, verses 1 to 6, which are David's cry for mercy, verses 7 to 12, which are David's plea for cleansing and restoration, and then finally verses 13 to 19, where we consider David's response to being forgiven. So, to the opening verses of Psalm 51. These words have played a part of worship in both Jewish and then the Christian tradition, set to music many times down the centuries with Perhaps the best-known setting, one of my favourites being that by Allegri, known simply as the Miserere from the Latin translation of the first word of the psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, David cries out, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. And here we have David's heartfelt cry for God's forgiveness and mercy. David's righteous anger at the behaviour of the rich man when challenged by Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 is now turned to sorrow, to remorse, to confession as he realises that he is that man. The great core of truth that we find time and again through the Bible as we find Blackpool running through a stick of rock is that if we turn from our sin, confess our wrongdoing, if we seek God's mercy... God is gracious and loving and will forgive us, will restore us. And in Jesus Christ, we have the promise that our sins have been wiped away as if they never happened. However imperfect our justice system is, it mirrors God's divine justice, which dictates that we cannot be punished twice for the same offence. As Christians, we believe that as Jesus hung and died on the cross on that first Good Friday, he took our sins, he took my sins, your sins, and he bore the punishment for them. And because Jesus was punished for our sins, because he took our punishment, we cannot be punished for them a second time around by a just and holy God. Which is why an understanding of what happened on the cross is of necessity so central to our understanding of our forgiveness and our salvation. David cried out to God for mercy, not because he, David, was really pretty good and didn't mean to do it, or because he was king and had a right to do so, to do what he did. Or it was his genes or his hormones that made him do it. No, David cried out to God because he knew of God's unfailing love and his great compassion and he thrusts himself on God's mercy. 
when we get it wrong and seek God's forgiveness, do we do so to try to justify our actions? Or do we cast ourselves on God's love and mercy and compassion? But that's the only way that we can come as sinners before our Lord and God. And David goes on to write, For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David doesn't try and hide his sin, rather he acknowledges it before God. Sinful human arrogance will try to deny sin. But having been confronted by his sinfulness, David acknowledges his sins before God. And if we are to receive forgiveness, we have to acknowledge our sin and wrongdoing before God. It's an interesting reflection that Donald Trump, when he was President of the United States, was on record as saying he doesn't regret not asking God for forgiveness and doesn't have much to apologise for anyway. I'll just leave that observation with you. And we're not called on to go round in sackcloth and ashes in a state of perpetual despair. But true forgiveness requires true repentance, which requires open and honest acknowledgement of our wrongdoing. As a minor aside, Psalm 51 and verse 3 was in medieval times and through, in fact, to the beginning of the 19th century, often referred to as the neck verse. You may ask why. Under English law, there existed a provision known as the benefit of clergy, whereby clergy could seek to have any offence of which they were accused tried in the ecclesiastical courts under canon law, where punishments were less severe than in the secular courts and where you were very unlikely to be passed a death sentence. And one of the tests applied to determine if someone was a member of the clergy was to read in Latin verse 51 and Psalm, Psalm 51 and verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And the ability to do so could, very often, save your neck from the hangman's noose. Hence, the term that was given to it. But we must move on. Verse 5, David writes, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And then he linked that to the concept of original sin. John Calvin wrote these words in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Original sin, therefore, seems to be a hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature, diffused into all parts of the soul, which first makes us liable to God's wrath, then also brings forth in us those works that Scripture calls works of the flesh. And that is properly what Paul often calls sin. The works that come from it, such as adulteries, fornications, theft, hatred, murder, carousings, he accordingly calls fruits of sin, though they are also commonly called sins in Scripture and even by Paul himself. Those of us who've had any involvement with young children will know that however good they are, we don't have to teach them to be naughty. Anybody ever had to teach a child to be naughty they seem to be quite capable of doing that themselves don't they the challenge that we have is to teach them right from wrong we don't undergo some conversion to naughtiness that comes naturally 
It's doing the right thing that's the challenge in confessing our sins as David did here. That's hard. It doesn't come naturally. It forces us to face up to our own wrongdoings, our own shortcomings. But having confessed his wrongdoing, having sought God's mercy, in the second section of the psalm, and don't worry, we won't spend as long here or in the closing section of the psalm, David pleads to be cleansed from his sins. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop branches had a deep significance. They were used by the Israelites in Egypt to place the blood of the Passover lamb on the door frames of their houses on the eve of the Passover. Jesus was offered a sponge soaked in vinegar on, held up on a, a, a stalk of a hyssop branch as he hung on the cross. Some confusion regarding the hyssop referred to in the Bible and modern hyssop, which is a shrubby plant in the mint family. And it's thought that the hyssop referred to in the Bible was a different plant. But that aside, David here is seeking cleansing from his sin. And as Christians, we know that we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's Jesus' blood shed on the cross. And his blood alone can wash our sins away. And as he continues, David writes, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Let me come to those words that we sung. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew your steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And notice how David prays that God would hide his face from his sins and blot out all his iniquity. He doesn't pray that God would blot him out or just turn a blind eye to his sins. Rather, he prays that all trace of his sin would be removed and that God would renew him, creating in him a pure heart, renewing a steadfast spirit, determined to do right, not wrong. Notice how despite the dreadful pain that comes on David and his family in the aftermath of his sin, David doesn't seek to push God away or lash out against him. Rather, he prays that God would renew and restore his relationship with David. In verse 12, David prays that he would be restored to the joy of God's salvation and that God would grant David a willing spirit. David is praying here for a new start, a restoration of his relationship he once had with the Lord, for it's sin that drives a wedge between us and God gradually at first, but gets wider and wider and wider as time goes on. When we acknowledge and confess our sin before God, do we also pray that our relationship with God would be restored as David did, or do we just want our guilt to be assuaged before just getting on with our lives, just as we had done beforehand and then we come to the final section of the psalm verses 13 to 19 which is David's response to knowing his sins are forgiven his relationship with God restored and what a transformation we see from the depths of despair to someone who is committed to praising God for what he's done for them David knew his wrongdoing whether he realised at the time we don't know but there was absolutely no escaping it when challenged by Nathan And its consequences would hang as a spectre over the rest of his reign. 
And David's response to his sin was this heartfelt cry for mercy and forgiveness, and his wrongdoings were washed away, were blotted out. Such forgiveness demanded a response. And David's response was to want to teach others about the ways of the Lord, the forgiveness and mercy that was to be found in him, to call sinners to turn back to the Lord where forgiveness was to be found. It's easy, isn't it, once a relationship starts to break down, to carry on drifting apart. It's difficult, isn't it, after a few weeks have gone by, weeks turn to months, months perhaps turn to years, to pick the phone up and make that call, to drop in and see someone. Especially if we think it'll stir up old hurts or lead to difficult conversations. And that applies as much to our relationship with our Heavenly Father as it does to long-lost colleagues or friends or acquaintances. And it's perhaps especially easy to drift away from church. And the longer we're away, the harder it is to come back, the harder it is to walk through that door. It's down to each of us, those of us who know that our sins have been forgiven and our relationship with our Heavenly Father restored to tell others of the forgiveness and acceptance and unconditional love that's to be found in Christ Jesus. And knowing that forgiveness and acceptance for ourselves should make us want to tell others to share the good news. And that was what David did and we should want to do likewise. Coming back to where we started, we need to build those relationships so that we can challenge our friends as Nathan challenged David, though perhaps not in quite such a traumatic way, or hopefully in such circumstances. But then in in God's side, all sin carries the same penalty. In response to the forgiveness we found and know for ourselves, we need to follow David's example and open our lips and allow our mouths to declare the praises of the one who has forgiven us and restored us. And it's not endless sacrifices or burnt offerings that God desires, outward signs seeking to pay the price for sin, the very graphic reminder as it was under the old covenant of the seriousness of sin. Such sacrifices were ultimately financial. The biblical version for many of the old saying, you did the crime, now do the time. Committed the sin, now pay the price, the sacrifice. What God desires, as David sets out here, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Not that we should be physically and emotionally broken, but rather that the hard-hearted arrogance of the one who denies God and seeks to do everything their way should be broken. The last survey I saw still said the most popular piece of music at a funeral was I did it my way. What arrogance. What utter arrogance. What God desires is a broken spirit, desires that we should come acknowledging our sins, recognizing and giving thanks for the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ and remembering the dreadful price that was paid to bring us that freedom, nothing less than the death of God's own son, Jesus Christ. Justice demands that crime should be punished and we all desire to live in peace, enjoying safety and security, and thankfully we do for the most part enjoy those benefits for much of the time. But we do live in a fallen world and not everyone shares the same view, which is why we need the forces of law and order, those who administer justice. 
Punishments need to be proportionate to the crime, not punitive. And whilst amongst some there's a desire to lock people up and throw away the key, we have to remember that, as we've seen here, there is no sin, with the singular exception of sin against, of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, as Jesus sets out in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31, where the sinner cannot find mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's difficult for many, especially those who have suffered grievously at the hands of the perpetrators of evil. And if any of us have suffered loss of a loved one through the deliberate actions of another person, I'm sure we would find it hard to forgive. But the entirety of creation has rebelled against God, and yet he loves us and forgives us. And forgiveness and mercy are at the heart of the gospel message. And we all stand in need of God's mercy and love. And that mercy and forgiveness can only be found when we turn and seek God with all our heart. Genuinely seeking forgiveness as David did, but knowing the freedom that comes from having the burden of sin lifted from us should make us want to sing God's praises. Today is a day of great sadness amongst us all as we mourn the loss of our dear sister Fiona. And yet she knew the love of Christ. She knew the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. We all know that she is at home with her Lord and Saviour where there will be no more crying or pain or dying or sorrow. God himself will wipe every tear from her eyes. My prayer this morning is that we would all seek God's forgiveness and mercy and that knowing the peace that comes with the certainty of knowing that our sins have been washed away. Later in Psalm, Psalm 103 reminds us that our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We have the certainty in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross that our sins are forgiven. As we rejoice in that freedom, my prayer this morning is that we would share the good news with those around us, that we would seek to challenge our friends who we see going astray, not self-righteously, but as one sinner to another, that we would be open to others when they challenge us. Above all, may we who know God's forgiveness rejoice and tell others of the joy to be found in Jesus Christ a peace that comforts and sustains us even in the very darkest of times. Amen.